0: Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. My name is Judy Cho, and I'm board certified in holistic nutrition. I focus on root cause healing, and oftentimes that's using a meat-based elimination diet for gut healing. While you're here, please make sure to like and hit the subscribe button. Okay, so today is part two with Dr. Richard Johnson. Dr. Richard Johnson is a nephrologist that is a professor and clinician and researcher at the University of Colorado. Dr. Johnson already has two books out, The Fat Switch and The Sugar Switch, and now he has this new book out called nature wants us to be fat. And this talks all about your uric acid, fructose, purines, possible artificial sweeteners, as well as salt and how that may affect blood pressure or how you can actually not make it affect blood pressure. So let's get right into the second part of the interview. If you missed the first part, please make sure to listen to it, especially if you eat organ meats and if you eat lots of fruits, and especially if you eat honey on a meat based diet, let's get into part two.
1: I'm not as concerned about uric acid, uh, elevations in uric acid on people who are on a ketotic diet because there are very few reports of gout. Many of them have no signs of inflammation. Uh, they have normal glucose levels. There, there's a, a group called the HASDA, hunter-gatherers, and they tend to eat a lot of honey, but they don't seem to get metabolic syndrome. And it may be that they are the honey may actually help raise uric acid and so forth that helps them stay at a, a healthy level where without it, they might actually have problems. It may help them to keep their glucose levels and so forth at the level that they need. So it's conceivable that, that uric acid can be a good thing in patients on a ketotic diet or, or people who are hunter-gatherers.
0: I don't eat any fruit and I'm very, very limited with my fructose consumption. So that's where my uric acid being a little bit higher and I don't eat organs. So that's where I'm not as fearful of the higher uric acid, but obviously since it's out of normal boundaries, I was um, interested. I saw a talk where they were talking about how there are different uric acid levels in your serum versus your intracellular. Do you think it has anything to do with that?
1: Yeah, it could. Uh, so the, where most of the action is, the way the uric acid works is inside the cell, not in the circulation. And there are there's settings where you can dissociate the two. So it's possible it could be that. I do want to bring up another point, which is that a very simple thing that you might consider doing to try to bring your uric acid down or to block any negative effects of the uric acid is to drink uh, water. Uh, A lot of water. So we found that fructose drops the energy in the cell. And that seems to be the special mechanism by which it, it drives obesity. And the way it works is that when the energy falls, that there's this, the breakdown of ATP is broken down to uric acid and uric acid is doing all these biologic effects. And so for the longest time, we thought it was just that pathway that was driving the obesity. But then we had the discovery that there's another mechanism that's linked with the uric acid driving the obesity. And that pathway seems to be due to the fact that fat is more than just an energy source. So we think of fat as a source of calories that animals use when there's not enough food around. But animals also use fat to produce water. And the way that works is when fat is burned, It generates water, so there's no water in fat. But when you burn it, you produce water. And a lot of animals turn out to make fat to not just store it as energy, but to store it as water. So when there's not enough water around, they can have it available. When we realized that that fat was also a means for storing water, we became interested in if you're dehydrated, would that be a mechanism? for stimulating fat, because if you were afraid you're going to become dehydrated or you were dehydrated, wouldn't it make sense to try to store fat as a source of water? Whales will have a lot of fat. They don't get their fresh water from the seawater. They have to get their fresh water from the crustaceans and things they eat. In order to get enough water, they actually get fat. And then what they do is they break down the fat to release water. So the the fat becomes a source of water. And so it turns out that dehydration is another mechanism for generating fructose in the body. So if you eat like salty foods, a lot of salty foods, that will activate this enzyme to convert glucose to fructose. And when you eat salt, you basically are becoming dehydrated. That's why you get thirsty. So you eat salt, get dehydrated, you start making fructose. The fructose drives fat production, and then the fat production becomes a source of water. And that is one of the protective mechanisms by which fructose tries to tries to help the animal, because if it feels it's trying to protect you, not just from too little food, but from absence of water. So if you have a lot of fat, you can live without a lot of water because you you can use the fat to make water. That's why the camel has fat, fatty hump, is so that it can produce water when it can't get enough, because it can break down the fat to produce water. So
0: if I understood you correctly, dehydration can actually endogenously within the body produce fructose. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's fascinating because a lot of carnivores, um, since we don't eat a lot of carbs with fat, with salt and sugar, we don't feel a lot of thirst. So There's a lot of thoughts where um, drink to thirst and a lot of carnivores aren't thirsty, but I wonder if some of the carnivores are because they're fasting a lot, they're never really thirsty. So they're maybe getting dehydrated and then they're producing some of the fructose, which is making some people stall in their weight, even though they're eating very low carb. There are a lot of cats that are developing kidney disease. Okay. And
1: a lot of them, we think they're getting dehydrated Mm -hmm. uh, and they're activating this pathway. And one of the thoughts is that they're not drinking enough water. This is also being seen in wild cats where they're developing kidney disease uh, associated with dehydration. uh, And we think that they're not getting enough water. So one of the uh, interesting things is that these animals, when they are getting dehydrated and vasopressin levels are going high, you you can suppress that by drinking water. So for example, if, if we give animals salt over time, for the first few months, there's not much going on, but they start making fructose and then they become very, very fat. And it's through this fructose vasopressin pathway. And if we give them water, we can suppress the vasopressin and we can um, and prevent them from getting obesity. Could fructose be driving fat as a mechanism to provide water for these animals that are in, in those kinds of situations? And so what we found is that dehydration actually is another mechanism that turns on this polyol enzyme to convert glucose to fructose. And when you become dehydrated, mild dehydration triggers this effect to try to make fat. And the easiest way to make mild dehydration is to eat salt, because when you eat salt, you become a little bit thirsty. And you're actually triggering a dehydration in your body. And that actually stimulates the production of fructose. And so when you eat salt, you actually make fructose. Now, everybody thought of salt as just being important in blood pressure. And very people think of salt, which has no calories, as being important in obesity. In the last 20 years, there have been all these studies that has shown that populations that eat a lot of salt are at increased risk for developing obesity. And we found that this was due to the fructose, because if we block the fructose, we could block how salt causes obesity. Salt then becomes another mechanism to drive obesity, and it works, though, through carbs. If you have glucose and you activate this enzyme, the glucose gets converted to fructose. So, like, if you're on a pure protein diet, a meat diet, you're not eating a lot of carbs. Uh, you're not going to have a lot of glucose around and, and the salt won't be as powerful as a mechanism to, to generate fructose because you you don't have the, the huge amounts of glucose in your system. A meat diet would be uh, protective. You know, a high salt diet would be less likely to convert the glucose to the fructose. Now, when we were looking at this. And we found that salt could cause obesity. Uh, the question was, and that it was through fructose, we had another thought. And that is that most people who are obese show signs of mild dehydration. And most people who are obese carry have an elevation of a hormone in their blood called vasopressin. And it, you can measure it. It's called copeptin. And Judy, you may want to measure your copeptin level to honestly okay. Because the copeptin level, when it's high, it is absolutely a risk factor for obesity. And it, it reflects this hormone vasopressin. And so we were interested because vasopressin holds on to water, and it does so by concentrating the urine. So we thought to ourselves, well, maybe vasopressin might actually increase fat production as, a mechanism, as another mechanism to hold on to water. And so we did a whole series of experiments, and we had a very big discovery which was that the vasopressin actually drives fat production and drives the metabolic syndrome. So fructose is driving uric acid and vasopressin together, and those are driving the obesity and metabolic syndrome. We've even figured out how the vasopressin works, and it works through a system that stimulates glucagon and cortisol and and a variety of things that, that basically increase our risk to become obese. And so sugar, fructose is driving this very grand pathway that Mm -hmm. involves uric acid and vasopressin. So when you, and you measure your uric acid and it's high, a question that I would want to know is, you know, is your vasopressin high as well? And if so, you know, maybe this is, you know, trying to keep you normal by trying to keep your glucose levels up. And maybe it's trying to keep you normal that way, but it is a little worrisome if it's, if they're really both high. And the interesting thing is you can suppress both by drinking water. So if you drink water, that can turn off the vasopressin. So we took animals, for example, and we fed them sugar, and their uric acids went up and their vasopressin levels went up and they became fat. But if we started giving them increased water intake, we could suppress that. And it turns out that water intake can actually not only help prevent the development of obesity, but actually uh, dampen the development of obesity in animals that are overweight already. And so people who are overweight don't realize that they're not drinking, many of them are not drinking enough water. I recommend at least six to eight glasses of water a day for pretty much everybody. But we, you don't want to just increase water because it is possible to intoxicate our water. You can drink right. so much water that you can get into trouble everybody is probably needs to discuss with their doctor how much is safe for them relates to how much work you're doing outside and all these kinds of things. But I would say that eight glasses of water is very healthy for the average person. Um, And if you're going to drink a lot more than that, you probably should talk to your doc, but that may be something that you could do when, if you measure a uric acid of eight in yourself and you, you know, you might try to just increase your water intake a little bit, And see if that, along with trying to reduce whatever food is driving up the uric acid, that may may help.
0: Okay. So I will try that. I was going to ask you if, you know, if you had an excess amount of water, if there would be a risk and it sounds like you can. So there's just work with your doctor. I normally recommend half of your weight in ounces. So if you weigh 130, drink about 65 ounces, obviously throughout the day, because you don't want to put an excess strain on your kidneys as well. So um, I, I will try that. And I I'm going to test that marker to see, I'd be curious. One other thing is um, sometimes my clients, they will have a high BUN, which obviously nitrogen is one of the uh, breakdown products of when uh, meats are getting broken down, but their creatinine is good and their GFR is good. Their inflammation is also low and they've never had uh, bouts of gout. So if their uric in that case, and they're on a low carb ketogenic, no fructose diet, if their uric acid is slightly up, maybe six, seven, and then their BUN is up, would you be concerned with that if the other markers?
1: No, I, I would not be concerned okay. from what you told me. So uh, when you're on a, a meat diet, the BUN will be a slightly high yeah. okay. uh, just from that. And uh, we're not really worried about the BUN at all. Okay. Um, and, and if you're muscular, your creatinine may go up just because creatinine uh, not only reflect, reflects kidney function, but also reflects muscle. Mass. So if you're very muscular, you may have a slightly elevated creatinine. So we can actually, if, if a, we see a person whose who's kidney function looks a little off, we, we can correct for things like muscle mass and so forth. There's a, other ways to measure kidney function. I'm not concerned about that. Now, if the creatinine is, is elevated, then there is some concern about the amount of meat and protein you're eating because um, meat and protein can can make the kidneys have to work harder.
0: Sure.
1: Uh, and so over time, it can, if, particularly if you already have kidney disease, you have to be a little bit careful about a high meat diet. But a, B1, a slightly elevated BUN, normal creatinine, no worries. Okay. And, yeah. and a slightly elevated uric acid, I wouldn't worry, especially if there's no inflammation and you know, no elevation in glucose and so forth.
0: There are people that have gout, Um, they're able to transition to a meat based diet after a while, you know, obviously, if they eat a bunch of purines at first, then they might have a gout flare just because of the dietary change. But let's say they have assimilated to this way of eating. Some people, they say that it might be a sudden increase and decrease of the uric acid in the synovial fluid, you probably understand this a lot more than me. So if somebody that had gout, had the history of it, but no longer suffering from that, but eating a meat-based diet, and then all of a sudden decided, I'm going to have a day of eating as much fructose as I wanted that day. And because of the sudden increase of uric acid from fructose and the purines, then they have a gout flare. Can you talk a little bit about this? Is it really the big shifts in the up and downs and possibly maybe eating off plan, maybe disadvantageous for people that have struggled with gout?
1: Yes. Yeah, so first off, uh, you know, gout correlates, the higher the uric acid is, the the higher the risk for developing gout. But there are people who've had gout with normal uric acids, yeah. uric acids of six. And there are a lot of people who have uric acids of nine who've never had a, mm-hmm. a gout attack. But typically when the uric acid gets around seven, the, there's an increased risk for gout. And so A lot of people will go by the fasting uric acid levels. But uric acid levels do go up and down during the day. And like if you eat a purine-rich or a um, sugar-rich meal, your uric acid can go up. And with sugar, the uric acid tends to go up like 15 minutes to 60 minutes after you eat it. But a purine meal, the the uric acid kind of peaks more like two to four hours after Mm -hmm. you eat it. And so there is uh, some variation. And so the classic uh, people who get uric acid attacks, you know, they'll tell you that you know they ate a particularly bad meal. Then they went to bed and at three in the morning, they wake up with a gout attack. And it's, the thought is, is that they ate this high purine meal or high uric fructose meal and it, it caused a shift in the uric acid that was able to trigger an attack. And also there's this thought that when you start a medication to lower uric acid, that this shift in uric mm-hmm. acid, that the shift may be enough to trigger attacks. So it's thought that the main risk for, for gout is the level of uric acid, but it's also known that the shifting is important and can play a role in triggering attacks. And if you can trigger it by eating a Purine rich or sugar rich meal, but you can also trigger it by by medicines that drop the uric acid too quickly and can can increase the risk.
0: In this thought, do you think it's dangerous that let's say for somebody like me that eats a meat based diet? I don't really eat organs of the meats. Uh, maybe not have the sardines every day, but you know on some days. But let's say once a week, I decide I'm going to go all in with my fructose. Is that? as dangerous as someone that just eats a bit of fructose every day?
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't think I can really answer that question. I, I would think that it might be, um, but I, I don't have, uh, I don't know for certain. But uh, yeah, if you eat a large amount on one day, you will get a more rapid rise uh, of the uric acid. And theoretically, it might lead to more crystallization if okay. you cross that solubility uh, level. I would think that um, intermittent binging would be uh, worse than uh, chronically eating small amounts. That would be my guess, but I don't know. I don't have data to support that.
0: I saw a study that creatinine levels, um, if they're high, it can be because maybe the low GFR numbers, um, and that is actually coming from hypothyroid. Is there a relationship with kidney issues or inflammation and hypothyroid? Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful.
1: Well, I mean, uh, people who are hypothyroid may have slightly elevated creatinines because their kidney function may be a little bit worse. Okay. So just by decreasing uh, metabolism, GFR okay. will tend to fall a little bit. So it might just be like that. The main worry uh, with high-protein diets and kidney function are really in people who have uh, established kidney disease. It's mm-hmm. really been the the problem in, in people who who have really significant kidney disease, what we call like stage three or stage four kidney disease. That's where you really do need to be careful with how much proteins you're eating because uh, proteins can cause an increase in pressure in the filtering units of the kidney. So the kidneys have like a million little filters per kidney. And when you eat high protein diet, it tends to increase the pressure transiently in those uh, filters. And it turns out that uric acid does some of the same thing. So when you raise uric acid, it increases the pressure in those filters. And, and normally the kidney can handle that pretty well. But if it's damaged, um, it's already got, t- when, it, when the kidneys damaged, the filters that are left usually filter under higher pressure right. to try to maintain filtration. And so it's under those circumstances where they're already kind of have a high pressure And then you take a high protein diet or, or raise the uric acid. And that tends to make that a little bit worse, you know, in that setting, eating a lot of protein could theoretically be a problem.
0: Okay. No. And and that makes a lot of sense. I think for somebody, a client of mine that if they had that type of scenario, I'd probably go a little less protein with a little bit more high fat. So they're in a more (laughs) ketogenic Uh, diet. You know, I've been dodging the salt stuff because I wanted to bring it up at the end or like closer to the latter half of this interview to talk about blood pressure and salt. And what I got from you earlier is that dehydration can produce endogenous fructose or within the body. And then also that salt can do the same thing. And a lot of people, you know, we hear the standard care is if you have high blood pressure, we need to reduce our salt. But you talk about something that there's a nuance with that. Can you talk about that? And so I'm sure some people are going to be watching this that are low-carb and that we are adding salt to um, our system. Should we be concerned on a low-carb diet with our sodium, or is there some nuance?
1: Okay, so salt has really been a controversial area in the literature. For sure, animals that um, develop high blood pressure, if you give them salt, you can make their blood pressure worse. You know, that's, that is absolutely true. And in people with high blood pressure, there's very, very good data that if you feed them a high salt diet, that you can make their blood pressure worse. Interestingly, if you're, if you have normal blood pressure, it's harder to show an effect of salt. Um, And if you're young and healthy, a lot of people seem to be able to eat salt without really seeing much of a rise in blood pressure. So um, there's been controversy in the literature that maybe salt restriction should really be limited to people with documented high blood pressure or or people in people who are over like 60 years old, there's an increase. Salt seems to raise blood pressure a little bit easier in in people who are older. And there's some studies that suggest African-Americans may be a little more sensitive to salt Mm -hmm. as well. So the idea that everyone needs to salt restrict is controversial because It's easier to show in people with high blood pressure and not so much in the young, healthy person. And on top of that, there's been this controversy because if you restrict salt too much, and if it's a very low salt diet, that seems to activate inflammation pathways and so forth too. So you don't want to be super salt restricted, but the average person's eating like 10 grams of salt a day and everybody realizes that that's a lot of salt. And so like the Institute of Medicine and so forth will try to recommend, you know, try to eat like five grams of salt and, um, you know, for the normal person, because there is epidemiologic studies that high salt can increase the risk for high blood pressure and high salt uh, can increase the risk for heart disease. So that's kind of where the, where it's been. Now, our group discovered that high salt diets can also increase the risk for obesity and diabetes. And actually there's there were already epidemiologic studies showing that, but, but now we can show it in the animals. If you put them on a high salt, over time, they start making fructose and they become o- overweight through a fructose dependent pathway. There's another twist to salt that maybe salt could not just be a risk factor for high blood pressure, but also a risk factor for obesity and metabolic syndrome. Uh, when we studied that mechanism, it's related to the concentration of salt in the body more so than the amount of salt. If you raise the salt concentration in the body, and that'd be like eating salt without water so that the salt goes into the blood and raises the salt concentration. That's what stimulates the vasopressin. That's what stimulates the fructose. It isn't, if you eat the salt with and drink water at the same time, doesn't go up. I mean, it stays the same then you don't stimulate fructose and you don't stimulate phasopressin and you don't create fat. So this idea that you have to restrict salt to five grams a day, according to our work, it isn't about the amount of salt, it's the balance of salt and water. And so we actually did a study where we gave salt, you can put salt in soup and you can mask the salt content by adding the salt to the soup. We can make a salty soup and we can make an unsalty soup and when we gave the salty soup to people, their salt concentration went up, they activated this switch, you know, this, uh, this fructose switch to, to become fat, and their vasopressin levels went up in the blood, and their blood pressure went up within minutes of wow. drinking a bowl of salty soup. But if we gave the salty soup with water so that the salt concentration did not go up, this whole switch, we could block the rise in blood pressure. So we think that the salt is an issue that it raises blood pressure through this fructose vasopressin pathway and that it's by uh, eating a lot of salt that raises the salt concentration in your blood. If you drink sufficient water, you can block that activation. If you ate some potato chips with a lot of water, the, the effect of the salt to convert the carbs to fructose you could block some of those effects by preventing that increase in salt concentration. So So for somebody
0: that has high blood pressure, if they were to just drink water with their salt, would that be an issue?
1: No, it should be good. According to our work, I mean, based upon the research that we published in the last few years, it's not so much the amount of salt, but the salt concentration that drives it. And so we did this study where we looked at Japanese healthy japanese people we we looked at how much salt they were eating and also uh their salt concentration in their blood we could show that where the amount of salt didn't predict if they were going to develop high blood pressure those who ate a lot of salt were at increased risk the greatest risk was if their salt concentrations in their blood was high if they had a high salt concentration that really increased their risk for obesity we think that, that if you drink a lot of water with salt, you could nullify a lot of the effects of salt. Now one thing that's really cool with a diet that is that has very little carbs is that you're not eating the glucose that the salt is, for the salt to work. It has to convert the glucose to fructose. If there's not a lot of glucose uh, in the diet, it will be less likely for the salt to actually drive the fructose production. It won't drive it as much as if you're feeding yourself a lot of glucose. So if you're eating French fries, which is starch, and that gives you a lot of glucose, and it's got the salt to help convert the glucose to fructose, that's like the perfect way to make the fructose. It's fried, so, so you've got the, the, the fat. French fries is, is a spectacular way to drive weight gain And it doesn't contain sugar, but it's making sugar.
0: When you were talking about the salt and how it could uh, further produce fructose within the body, I think of some cultures, how they eat fruit, and then they add salt to the fruit. And it's just a double dose of the fructose. That's uh, pretty (laughs) interesting. Um, And it's cultures that have a tendency to be obese. So it's it's just really interesting. Uh, You mentioned that a lot of the reason at the core of the blood pressure is that it really stems from inflammation in the kidneys. And you mentioned like it's part of the immune system, the T cells and the macrophages, but why is there this inflammation in the kidneys? And then what does the role of salt and blood pressure, what what does it have to do with the kidneys? And and then what does this have to do with fructose?
1: You know, so high blood pressure is the number one cause of stroke and it's the number one cause of heart failure and it has a role in kidney disease. So high blood pressure is really, an important problem. And what what happens with high blood pressure is initially your blood pressure is is elevated intermittently. uh, And then over time, it becomes elevated all the time. Things like fructose, when you eat it, your blood pressure goes up quickly, but then it comes down after the fructose is metabolized. When you eat salt, the blood pressure goes up quickly and then it comes down uh, after a while it's initially a transient rise in blood pressure. If you get it worked up in front of a, when you're at the podium giving a talk, your blood pressure may shoot up during that time and then it comes down. So we call that borderline or intermittent hypertension. You know, it's not real permanent hypertension where your blood pressure is high most of the time. And so the question is, you know, what causes that? Well, it turns out that certain foods cause that intermittent hypertension. And we think it's the uric acid, and we think it's, uh, you know, how this this whole pathway of fructose, uric acid, and vasopressin. And so we've been able to suppress uh, the intermittent hypertension, for example, by lowering uric acid. So I did a study in people where I gave fructose, high doses of fructose to people for two weeks, and their blood pressure went way up uh, uh, while they were on the fructose. But if we lowered the uric acid during that time, and one group had that lowered, we could prevent that rise in blood pressure. But the blood pressure usually works shortly after the ingestion of fructose, and then it comes down. So the question is, what converts the intermittent hypertension to persistent hypertension? So what appears to be is that there's a period of intermittent elevations in blood pressure driven by diet and other things. And then there becomes a period of persistent high blood pressure. Right. And what had been known was that the kidney has a very important role in the persistent rise in blood pressure. So the question is, how does the intermittent changes lead to persistent changes? And one of the things we found is that when you uh, raise uric acid intermittently, or if you get like sugar and so forth, that over time you start to get an inflammation in the kidneys and that inflammation acts on the kidneys to reduce the amount of salt that is excreted. And so this inflammation that occurs in the kidneys in response to uric acid, in response to sugar, and so forth, appears to be driving this kidney response. And then that inflammation in the kidney stays persistent. And one of the interesting aspects of it is that the way it seems to work is that there's the uh, expression of what happens is that the uric acid, when it goes up in the blood, causes constriction of blood vessels, both systemically and inside the kidney. And when it constricts the blood, blood vessels, it kind of restrict, reduces the blood flow. And when it reduces the blood flow, the tubules in the kidney and the, in particular feel like they're not getting enough blood. And so they produce or they start to express proteins they normally don't express and what happens is you, the, the body starts to react to them. It's almost like what we call an autoimmune reaction. And what happens is you get this inflammation that stays persistent in the kidney and keeps the blood vessels constricted. And when it does that, it reduces the ability to get rid of salt. So what happens is you start off with a normal kidney that can get rid of salt easily, and uh, but you're eating the wrong foods and your blood pressures are intermittently going up and you're doing this kind of repeated insult to the kidney where there's where it's not getting enough blood blood supply to the small to the tubules and stuff intermittently and then over time that turns into a chronic inflammation and that chronic inflammation seems to lead to the salt retention that occurs and then that salt retention causes the salt concentration to go up and activates this whole process and now you have a uh, persistent hypertension high blood pressure that is chronic high blood pressure.
0: would someone that has that inflammation would the just the addition of water mask the issue?
1: Well theoretically, if you could like for example, if you drank a lot of water and could prevent activation of those pathways okay. it might might have a big role in reducing blood pressure. And as I mentioned we did do a study where we gave salty soup with or without water. And we could block the acute rise in blood pressure. Whether or not you know um, staying well hydrated could prevent the development of hypertension in people is something that would, would be worthy studying because it's quite possible.
0: That's very interesting. You also mentioned that low blood pressure isn't also ideal, especially as you're getting older. Um, why is that? And then what is an ideal blood pressure?
1: Well, it is true that as you get older the ability of the kidneys to uh, respond to low or high blood pressure gets worse. Normally, the, the kidneys respond if your blood pressure is high. Mm-hmm. The kidney adapts to the high blood pressure to so that it filters normally. So it does that by constricting the blood vessels to dampen the pressure to the kidney. And then that allows the kidney to filter normally, even though the systemic blood pressure is high but it does so by constricting its vessels. And likewise, when the when the blood pressure is low, the blood vessels in the kidney will dilate mm-hmm. to allow adequate perfusion. So we call this auto-regulation. What it means is that the kidney is a smart organ and it can adapt to changes in pressure in the body. So if you have high blood pressure, the kidney tries to adapt so that it's filtering fine. And if it's low blood pressure, it adapts. But as we get older that ability to regulate becomes a problem. So like if you have a a low blood pressure or if you drop blood pressure too low and you're older, you're you're not going to adapt as well. And so the kidney function is gonna fall uh, more significantly. And likewise, if the blood pressure is really high uh, and you have kidney disease or you're older and you can't regulate, then the pressure gets transmitted and causes damage to the kidney. So the kidney is um, can be a, can kind of reflect the health of your blood vessels, and if your blood vessels are are not healthy, both low blood pressure or high blood pressure can be bad to the kidney. The ideal ranges, I mean, what we would like to see blood pressure be between 100 over 70 to uh, to 130 over 80, and the and the dream is to have a blood pressure of like 110 to 120 over 80. Mm-hmm. That's the healthiest for the kidneys, right? And right. For the blood and for the vasculature.
0: Okay. Do you think that blood pressure can be something other than this inflammation in the kidneys? For example, uh, the endocrine system. So where the adrenals are, the adrenals. Let's say you're um, highly stressed and you're taxing your endocrine system, your adrenals, where produces cortisol. But that pathway, the uh, the steroid hormones, also manages the corticosteroids and and the aldosterone that also impacts how much they're going to retain salt. So can hormones be also affecting the blood pressure and the salt retention?
1: Absolutely. So, so there are many causes of high blood pressure Okay. and uh, the major cause of high blood pressure is called primary hypertension. This is the one where people haven't really understood what causes it. And, you know, our data would suggest that this type of high blood pressure is driven uh, a lot by inflammation in the kidney uh, and is initiated by processes like uh, too much sugar, too much salt, and and possibly activation of this fructose pathway. So that makes up about 90% of high blood pressure, but there's about 10% of high blood pressure uh, is what we call secondary hypertension. Mm -hmm. And that's often driven by hormones like cortisol and aldosterone. Uh, one of the more interesting ones is there's a, a secondary hypertension that's uh, fairly common and it's driven by increased aldosterone production from the adrenal gland. And aldosterone holds on to salt. Right. This aldosterone, there's so many people developing this uh, this hypertension, which is due to a benign tumor making too much aldosterone. And it's been kind of a mystery. But what's interesting is when you uh, give fructose to animals and you give and you raise activate this pathway aldosterone is also produced as is some cortisol so this even this this pathway that we've been talking about this sugar uric acid pathway is associated with an increase in aldosterone and an increase in cortisol and we've been wondering if because uh, some of the risk factors for developing this aldosterone producing hypertension seem to be obesity and and diabetes that the two appear to be linked and, and could it be that this, um, this, what we call secondary hypertension, is also related to this diet and lifestyle and issues related to this pathway? Uh, we're learning more all, all the time, and we don't have full answers to this. But we, you know one of the things we've been concerned about is that this hypertension that is driven by the sugar and salt could be involved in, in even other forms of hypertension. And that, and you're right. The vasopressin is important. Mm-hmm. the The salt is important, and aldosterone is activated. There even cortisol levels go up. So you're right. It's all part of one big process.
0: So in closing, do you have rules around for your patients uh, that may have higher uric acid levels? Are there foods that are sort of off the table, dietary recommendations? And then just in general, if there's tips to, um, for uric acid and kidney health?
1: Yes. Okay. So the, f- the first thing is that um, liquid sugars are a major way to raise uric acid and a major way to activate this uh, process to gain weight. Uh, I would really recommend avoiding any drinks that have a lot of sugar in it, and that includes fruit juices. That's number one. Number two, in general, fructose-containing foods, sugary pastries, and things like that would also be the next thing to target. I would also be concerned about high-glycemic foods like Mm -hmm. potatoes, rice, Bread and and especially uh, combined with salt, like French fries, as another mechanism that could activate this process that could lead to intracellular uric acid generation and uric acid generation. Uh, So I would be worried about those. In terms of the purine-rich foods, the ones that that I worry about most are things like anchovies and sardines and mackerel that may have a lot of purines. I'm less concerned about other types of fish. Uh, the shellfish, you know, some shellfish like oysters and shrimp can contain a fair amount of purines, so I would kind of not overdo it with those. The poultry and so forth seem to be pretty low in purines, relatively. Red meat is kind of mixed, probably. I know that red meat is a big part of the diet, but you know, in the absence of sugar and carbs, it's probably not a huge purine load. It's not the same. As um, as sugar and beer, I would be careful with of of the alcohols. Beer is the one with the highest risk, and that's not because of the alcohol, but because of the brewer's yeast. Right. Um, and uh, and then hard alcohol would be a li- would be intermediate. Wine would be a little bit less. The devil's is is pretty much with all foods. I mean, all foods have pros and cons. Right. And so there's no like perfect nothing's perfect in this world. And I think that in general, uh, meats are good because they uh, a lot of carbs seem to be at the center of this problem, especially fructose and carbs that can generate fructose. So um, this is one of the great benefits of a of a meat diet is that you've really taken out one of the main players for driving obesity.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is really important information. If I can kind of summarize, which there was so much information we talked about, but there is a possibility that uric acid levels will go up on a carnivore or a meat only diet. And as long as there uh, the other mechanistic players are not at play, so we're not eating a lot of fructose where our inflammation markers are down and other blood works down, maybe it's not as concerning, obviously check the amount of hydration, make sure that if I'm adding salt, that maybe, um, you know, we add more water, make sure we're hydrated. And that if we're fasting, oftentimes we're not thirsty. And so again, that uh, level of dehydration that happens that can stimulate fructose. So there's all these pathways that can stimulate fructose. Our goal is to not really stimulate it as much because we don't want to make that switch to start storing fat because we are in a culture and society of plenty. And so we don't need that switch to be on. Exactly. So I know you, you know, your book is wonderful and you've had many um, books that you've written. Can you talk about where, you know, the book, a little bit about the book, where you can get it and, you know, where people can find you in all your work?
1: Oh, thank you. Well, uh, you know, so the book, Uh, tells the story of this, of our research that, you know, identified fructose as a way that activates this biologic switch and, um, and the different types of ways you can activate this switch and, you know, how we've learned this uh, from all this information, you know, how to, how to help prevent the development of obesity and, uh, and even possibly reverse it. We've been able to link the, uh, these pathways with the development of other diseases too, uh, including, um, Alzheimer's and uh, behavior disorders and a variety of things. So the the book has a a lot to talk about in terms of nutrition and its effects on on health. You can read more about it uh, by going to my website, which is drrichardjohnson.com. You can get the book through Amazon uh, or any uh, Barnes and Nobles, uh, books a million, you know, through all these different uh, venues. Um, And it's called Nature Wants Us to Be Fat.
0: And I'll put all the information in the show notes, all your books and the links to them. Thank you so much for your time and all the research you've done. Um, I think this is a really, really important discussion in our communities that are eating meat only. And then as they decide to add back foods... A lot of people are turning to fruits and honey, and I don't know if that's the safest mechanism, especially from our conversation. Maybe it's that they needed a little bit more water to lose some of the weight. Um, Maybe it was something else, but I don't know if just adding more liver or um, adding more fruit is the solution when a meat only diet is not working. I think it could be something else.
1: Yeah, no, maybe we can figure this out together.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your time again. It has been a pleasure.
1: Yeah, thank you, Judy.
0: Okay, guys, I hope that you enjoyed the full interview with Dr. Richard Johnson. Um, Make sure to get his book. Again, it's called Nature Wants Us to Be Fat and it is out in February. This talks a lot more in detail of the studies and of the research that Dr. Johnson has done to talk about high uric acid levels, fructose, and what that all means in terms of our metabolic health. I hope you take away from this that sometimes adding a lot of fruit, and this will depend on your own metabolic health and your whether you came into this way of eating with good kidney function, good liver function, if you had insulin resistance or hyperinsulinemia, if you were diabetic, all of these things will play a factor in how much fruit you can actually eat in a meat-based diet. Um, The honey thing, I'm really just not a fan of eating honey. I just don't think it's ideal. So make sure to consider these things when you are not feeling well on a meat-based diet. I hope that this just gives you another tool to get you closer to root cause healing. While you're here, please make sure to like and hit the subscribe button. Okay, guys, make sure to eat a lot of meat. Take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you guys later. Bye, guys.